You asked for it and you got it. All of you kind people who filled out my survey asked for more interviews with more legends. Well, our guest is the world's most awarded bartender and bar owner. So if Mr. Lion isn't a legend, I don't know who is. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. If you call yourself a cocktail connoisseur, then you will have definitely come upon the name Mr. Lion in your travels. Ryan J.T. Duardena, a.k.a. Mr. Lion, opened White Lion in London in 2013. It was a moment that will go down in cocktail history as the first cocktail bar in the world to use no perishables. That means no fruit and even no ice. Plus, an innovative approach to sustainability with much lower waste and the use of pre-made cocktails and never-before-seen ingredients. This focus on a groundbreaking approach remains in the evolution of all of his bars, like White Lion, Super Lion, Dandelion, Cub, Lioness, Silver Lion, and Seed Library. Ryan's with me today to discuss his new book, Mr. Lion's Cocktails at Home, Good Things to Drink with Friends. But we go into so much more. How his relationship to flavor evolved, how his studying fine arts at Central St. Martin's, as well as biology at Edinburgh University, spurred him on to get behind the bar, and why the need to write a book at all. You have no idea how excited I am to finally have Ryan on the show. So, let's get started. But before we begin, you know you can always watch this episode on YouTube, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now let's join Ryan, a.k.a. Mr. Lion. We're here to talk about your book. I don't usually do this with guests. I am going to say what I want to talk about because there's so much that I don't want to forget something. So if we come to the end of it and we're like, wait, we didn't talk about that, but I don't want to miss anything. So before you even say anything, I'm going to tell you what it is. (laughs) It's kind of your background with flavor, your role as an educator and how that's different maybe from behind the bar or someone who's written books, your role as a book writer. And your role as a a recipe creator for someone whose drinks are known for like, and these are your words, layers of complexity Uh and how that differs from writing ones for your book and and the book itself. So we'll go through the book itself a little. I'll bring it down because I want everyone to see those wonderful illustrations. Wonderful. Thank you. That sounds great. Oh, great. And if there's not, there's something there you don't want to talk about, that's fine. We'll do that too. We won't do that, should I say? No, no, no. All done. Yes. (laughs) So number one, a friend called me while I was reading your book and I was like, I can't talk to you now. I have to make your fireside flip. And I was like, it, it really made me want to reach out and grab ingredients and start to make things. Oh, that's really wonderful to hear. You know, reading the book, you have a lot of books. So you've, you published one in 2015. You published, that was good things to drink with Mr. Lion and friends. You published one in 2017, good together, drink and feast with Mr. Lion and friends. 
And then you have this wonderful new edition yes. in 2023 for maybe your, your 10th anniversary. And I noticed that you dedicated one to your sister. Yes. And one to your, to your family, but specifically your mom. Yeah. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about your relationships with them in terms of the household and your upbringing and your relationship to, to flavor. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously the, like, there's lots of other people on that list who've made a big, big impact on me and kind of from a family perspective, it was, it was very lovely to have so much influence come from, both you know, my, my dad, my, my brother, people that I count as family and in kind of other ways. But I think there was something very specific about the impact that my sister Natasha and my mum Buddy kind of created on me from, I suppose, a joy perspective. And, you know, the thing that I'd always been trying to explore was from a multitude of different interests and, you know, things that I wanted to be able to, to kind of keep as part of my life. But when it came to the work output and the focus on the food and drink world, both mum and Natasha had probably had the, the kind of biggest impact. And I think what they had done to, to kind of spark my intrigue around it, but also I suppose to look at it in a more holistic way was, was really key. And that's why I wanted to dedicate the book to those in, in kind of various ways, because mum kind of taught us about flavor. She taught us about kind of like the practicalities of cooking. She taught us about kind of techniques. We were trained to be very adept from quite young age. We were cooking from when we were tiny. I'm interrupting you. No, please. Where were you born and what kind of cooking are we talking about? Oh, so this was kind of being raised in Birmingham. So okay. Despite being kind of born to, to kind of Singley's parents, we were, we were brought up with, I suppose, quite Western cooking. There was a couple of other influences that came in. My oldest friend is, is half Chinese. We had some very close friends who were um, Chinese Malaysian who just lived up the road from us. So I suppose the other big flavor influence in my life, more so than Sri Lankan, was actually Chinese growing up. And I think that was the thing that I used to play a lot of sport and do some music. And that was Chinese food was the, the accompaniment to that. I suppose it was almost the bribe when we were kind of going to do things as kids and, you know, parents wanting us to do lots of extracurricular activities, classically Asian parents. <laughs> and, you know, they, you know, they, they kind of enticed us with the idea of kind of Chinese food and, you know, being able to go to, to kind of like our favorite restaurants or, or go to friends' houses or, or for mum to cook those kind of foods as well. I grew up in Birmingham, but I grew up around quite diverse flavors, but strangely not around um, kind of Singhalese or Sri Lankan flavors when we were young, partly because I think our parents were very keen for us to assimilate. I think they had a very different journey into the UK when, you know, they, I suppose, coming, arriving from Sri Lanka and, and kind of, I suppose, their worries about what that would be for, for kids growing up and, you know, wanting to make sure that we were, felt kind of as home as possible. But I think it's also because we just couldn't handle the heat. You know, we didn't, we couldn't do spicy foods. You know, Sri Lankan food was fiercely spicy. And I remember when we visited for the first time as kids, just not being able to eat anything in Sri Lanka. So Sri Lankan food and culture is something I've definitely kind of embraced as I become an adult. It wasn't a major part of our kind of culinary journey growing up. Were you in, in there cooking with your mom? I mean, was this something that you, you know, knew that you were going to, you know, from those early days, knew you were going to go play with as an adult? Oh, no, not at all. We, we were kind of taught that you had to learn how to do that. You had to be able to look after yourself, but also it was something you did as, as a family activity. It was a social thing. It was something to do with kind of looking after each other. So it was, 
you know, it, it definitely was kind of ingrained in us from a young age, but not in any way that it was designed to shape what we're going to do next. I mean, I think there was probably one Sri Lankan influence that we, we were baking cakes a lot from, from a young age. And if you go to a Sri Lankan household, there is a guarantee that a cake is going to appear from somewhere. So I think there was that influence. But also I think, you know, whenever we would go into kind of friends parties, mum would always, always insist on, you know, on making something. It was partly from a cost perspective. It wasn't about just going out and buying things. Our parents were very frugal when we were young and, you know, trying to do the best with whatever they could. And we definitely made a lot of presents. We baked cakes. If we were having friends around and we would kind of like create things and you know it definitely taught us the value um of making but also of that kind of consideration so that's that's definitely kind of been ingrained in in all of us as we've grown and we've applied it in different ways but you know it was very much this idea that food was a a social tool and it was a way of of, of kind of looking after people and showing care so i think that was something that really got ingrained in into me particularly when i was you know, thinking about what I wanted to do next, it was it was kind of guided by this. And even when I started in kitchens and then switched to bars, I think was really kind of shaped by, you know, the way that we've been brought up to have a, to kind of think on food, not as just something that was purely sustenance, not something that was kind of the, the you know, the the dish itself was. It was more about the idea of it being an act of love or a, or a social kind of kind of tool, really. Um, well, I've read that you studied biology, that you yeah. studied fine arts. Were you thinking of having a career in both of those at, or one of those? And then something deflected you, you know, to the world of flavor and kitchens and then behind bars? Yeah, I mean, you know, originally food and then drink was was very much my background to to kind of fun studies. So as I was going through from, you know, art college through, I was I was really doing it because I love the social aspect of, of being in those environments. And I wanted to, to kind of like, you know, be able to have a little bit of extra fun while I was at university. So being able to be in kind of like a bar setting was, was amazingly social and it was great for kind of being able to fund the fun of university. But actually, I think the, the point came when I turned around, I, I, I switched from doing fine art to biology because I think it was being reflected in my work. You know, the work I was doing, I never really divided arts and sciences. And while I was at art college, I, you know, I really was doing things that felt quite scientific. And I remember having a great discussion with my my tutor on kind of my final rotation. You know, I had my place to do fine art and I was speaking to her and she came from a academic background and she kind of went, well, listen, it really feels like you need to still kind of explore something and get it off your chest. You can always have that kind of creative output it seems like you're, you're, you're kind of craving these kind of more academic studies. So I went up to, to Edinburgh to, to study biology and it was still all about people. That was the thing that intrigued me about it. But there was something in the kind of point where I was going through the kind of academic world. And I remember turning to my dad and asking him because as I kind of went into doing philosophy from biology, you know, I, I remember saying, I, I, I know I don't want to be in kind of research at the end of this, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was always trying to find this balance of kind of arts and sciences. And I was intrigued by people. So that was the kind of motivation behind all those studies. I, I remember turning to him and he's like, listen, the, the key thing is you don't want to get to a certain point in your life and go down a specific path and realize you hate it. So if you need to make these choices now, this is a good time to change. And like I was, I feel internally grateful for, for that advice and that support. And you know, it was, it was support from all angles. It was kind of 
financial, it was kind of emotional, it was just being able to have that kind of, I, I suppose, trust and to be able to, to kind of think and, and shift uh, dynamics. You know, even by the time I suppose I eventually graduated, I was doing my, my master's when I first won UK Bartender of the Year and I was, you know, traveling back and forth to London from Edinburgh. And it was very clear to me at this point that I was going to kind of end up in bartending. But I, I remember, I suppose, kind of telling my dad, that's where I think I'm going to be. And he was like, listen, if you, if you found something you love and you feel like you can kind of make a career out of this, and I think it did help, you know, I was starting to get some kind of traction. It wasn't just the kind of bar work alongside kind of university life. And, you know, I think the, the, the main worry for a parent is if you're going to end up starving on the street. And of course. You know, I think because my sister paved the way as like being a very successful designer and she'd gone through what, you know, my parents didn't really realize could be a, a career, you know, she'd kind of, yeah, I suppose kind of eased the, 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 the uh, kind of path for me uh, to be able to go, well, I'm going to do something quite untraditional, but it's not going to leave me starving. <laughs> I love that. While you were studying, you said you were becoming well-known as a bartender. What was it about the bar world that that really drew you in? Was it the social aspect? Was it being, you know, a scientist? You know, what what kind of thing was it? Well, it it was a bit of all of those. I think it was amazing to me where I had this opportunity to kind of explore both the science and the art side of my interests. And it was this wonderful idea to me that, you know, I never divided them. I always saw them as the same thing, but being able to have a, an output and to be able to have a career that allowed me to to kind of find my own space within it and, and look at it from both those angles and include that without it being, you know, I never tried to make things feel scientific or, you know, tried to do things that are like, this is an art movement or anything like that. It was just using the, I suppose, the thinking behind each of those roots to to try and explore something new in in the world of, of of kind of food and drink, but it really was the social aspect that that brought it to life for me. It was the people I met, and the thing that I've always loved about the the food and drink world. I think, you know, there is inevitably something quite like there's an immense satisfaction out of making people happy. You know, there is something that if if you're a person that kind of enjoys that that act and that's your way of expression, then I think it feels incredibly fulfilling. And I think that's quite a a universal thing. I, I definitely recommend this is part of the big steer in the books is to think about it as an act of love rather than kind of like a prescriptive, these are the formulae or the recipes you need to learn. But it was also the people I met, you know, it became this incredibly diverse set of people that were doing very interesting things, had come from such a wide range of backgrounds, but were joined by this idea of, of kind of going, right, we make people happy. The ways in which we do that are very different. We can express our characters. We can be ourselves. There was nothing that felt kind of rigid about it. And I think that was something that I knew I needed. Not that I'm kind of, you know, anarchic in the way that I can't follow rules, but I definitely, you know, like the idea of kind of individual expression and being able to be yourself rather than just be a generic part of something. So being able to be part of an industry that celebrated that felt kind of magical to me it kind of almost like felt like i'd stumbled on something you know didn't make sense and it, i suppose the, the motivation for me in in any career was never money or anything like that so finding something where i was working with amazing people i felt satisfied from both a kind of creative a social a excitement level like it it kind of really did feel like i'd stumbled across something that was yeah a bit of a, a secret trade uh, and it just fit perfectly 
And you hit the ground running with success after success. I mean, as I said, we could be here for like five hours talking, but I, I'm, I really want to focus on your role as an educator um, yeah. because you've brought out these books and you've done some wonderful things. I mean, I know that I'm not alone in having you in my living room like every single night during lockdown um, with Masterclass. Oh, that's wonderful. Even though you had written your first book in 2015, your second book 2017, I think you became like this household figure with Lynette as Masterclass hit and, yeah. you know, as lockdown hit. And I know I just sat there. It was, I can't even say guilty pleasure. It was just pleasure, pleasure every day, really. And I think a lot of people had cocktails on their mind. And I want to discuss that your role, you know, having bars, you have so many successful bars. And so you're constantly educating. You're not only educating your other bar staff to create your vision of your bars, but also the public. And I was wondering how you see the difference or if there is a difference and how you, how maybe how you approached Masterclass, how you approached your first few books. Yeah. You know, and also while, you know, talking about centrifuges, which we don't really have with your, <laughs> you know, and, and sous vide machines with your staff. Yeah, I, I think there definitely, in some ways, there was a massive difference between that trade education and the consumer. But ultimately, the things that boiled down to were, were very similar. And that's, I suppose, was the motivation behind the books and, and certainly the Masterclass series. And, you know, it was about relevance. And, you know, I think some of the things that we do in the bars, you know, they are there to be exciting for people. That's what they want them to be. They want to feel accessible. And, you know, we work so hard on kind of like giving the team the freedom to be able to be themselves and connect people to these kind of weird and wonderful things that we do in each of the spaces. As much as I would like at some stage to do a book that was kind of more geared up to you know, the professional or the ultra geek who is willing to go, OK, cool, I'm going to do these series of fermentations. We're going to do these 50 steps to be able to make this or I'm going to take the three weeks of background work to be able to make this ingredient. But that's not what, you know, as somebody who loves making cocktails at home, I was never going to do that at home. It was really, I, I wanted to be able to demonstrate that cocktails were magic. It was the fundamental of them. And it doesn't need to be something ultra complicated. It can be very, very simple. You know, making a great gin and tonic can be magical. And, you know, how can you demonstrate the, the learnings that we had kind of acquired from kind of being in the industry for two decades and, you know, seeing ways of which we could put things together, make people happy and connect them to it. How could we teach those lessons? And, you know, the, the idea with the books was to, to kind of really make it, that's why we use very plain language. It was about how do we look at the, the practicalities, understanding of the emotions and think on the way that these kind of flavors resonate or these styles of drink kind of connect to a certain moment or occasion or, or a feeling and kind of help guide people around that kind of mentality. And, you know, it was wonderful seeing the success of the books and seeing people actually use them. But as you say, there was, it was just very serendipitous timing with the launch of the Masterclass series. But I think people realized when, you know, the pandemic hit, they were at home. Not only did they miss the excitement of something like a cocktail, there was something that felt kind of really special about it. I think they really understood that the importance of bars and getting together in that social aspect and, and what a cocktail could do to help really reinforce that moment. And so I think there was something really special about, you know, yes, people 
to learn how to make sourdough or did very complicated recipes. And, you know, I have a friend who decided to try and make ramen at home, which is incredibly ambitious. But, you know, it, it, there was something about a cocktail with the instant gratification, the, the fact that it felt social, even if you were connecting over a digital platform, but also the fact that it created this sense of togetherness. And, you know, it was something to be shared. It was something to cheers. It was a little bit of escapism as well. And so teaching people that, you know, they could make something their own, they could gift it to people, they could send it, they could kind of reflect their personalities in something very different to the function of cooking. It was, a, it was purposefully there to feel like joy. And there was something really nice about seeing the success of, of, of those series and, and people kind of engaging with that type of education, because that's the stuff that I always like to teach, even if I'm talking to a specialist trade audience. Yes, all of these things are tools, like being able to, to use these pieces of equipment or these types of flavors or, or express through these kind of like storytelling narratives. That's all a tool. What we're trying to do is create emotion for our guests, like an element that they haven't quite cottoned onto yet. So we can anticipate a need, reflect it, and for them to be able to leave happier than when they came into our spaces. So it's all about trying to think on the sentiments. But there was something really nice about kind of empowering a home bartender who, who didn't have that wealth of knowledge or hadn't had that experience to go, wow, I can understand my palate in a different way. I can start to think on you know, the favorite flavors that I use in my cooking or I know I bring into my house or you know, the things that I've collected over the years. But even helping them discover a new side of their favorite ingredients and showing how they can fold that into things that kind of help them kind of moments together with their friends and family feel more magical because it was kind of motivated originally by, you know, I'd have friends who would ask about a certain infusion or they would go, I need to be able to get a recipe for for making you know, it was a friend who asked me for a margarita recipe and they said i've got i think they said it was like 30 friends coming over for a brunch and they were like can you give me a margarita recipe and i was like i can but that's a terrible idea because <laughs> this is a drink only sings when you you know you've shaken it up or you or you've got a slushy machine that can kind of get it ideal and you know you're putting all of this care into it to get it precise you're going to be squeezing limes and you're going to be shaking up drinks you're going to be sticky and stuck in the kitchen for the whole time. You're not going to enjoy brunch with your friends. What you could do is, you know, if you've got 30 people coming, this drink could be ideal for it. It would give the same sentiment. You could have something that's not going to get people too knocked out on brunch and it's going to work for a, for a brunch environment. It's going to work alongside the food that you're serving. And I remember them just going, I never had even thought about these things. I just liked margaritas. I was like, hey, get it. And then I get why you want something that feels fresh and lifting. This is going to do all those things for you, but it's going to mean that you can have a good time over this rather than get like locked in the kitchen. And just those kind of little insights and then the, the comments back about how great a time they had, you know, how much people commented on it. But actually just, you know, it was like, this was a wonderful day that we had as a result of this. And those moments are what I think cocktails can help really bolster. So the books were, were really trying to go, well, this is different to somebody coming into the bar and us talking through it and having that intimate connection. It's about how do you empower people to then take on those ideas and make it their own. And that's what's been so wonderful to watch with, with kind of putting these things out into the world compared to the, the kind of difference of having people come into the bars. Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to say that while watching Masterclass, why it was so fun for me is I've been lucky enough to come to some of your, not all of your bars, but at least the London ones. Yeah. And so I felt during lockdown that 
I was actually there, you know, it, it took me away. And yeah. that was such a lovely thing to be able to go, okay, I can, even though I've never seen you behind the bar there, but I was like, you know, I can imagine, you know, Aiden, Aiden Bowie behind the bar yeah. making a drink. I can imagine my friend Alfonso being there. Yeah. So that was really, really joyful. But about the books, I, you know, what you're saying, I, and of course I should have realized this, you know, this having been your first book, that it could have been the nerdiest book ever. You could have yeah. gone pure scientist as your first book and been like, look how smart I am. And it's such a joy that you created something that has literally your name and friends on it. Yeah. You know, it always has and friends. And also this yeah. is your other book, you know, it's and friends. And that, that sense of community is what drove you to create these. Absolutely. And those are the things ultimately I've loved about drinks. You know, sometimes you do want to share it with just kind of one other or you've had a long day and you want something that feels like a hug to be able to kind of like hunker down with alongside some food. It's, you know, it, of course there's those moments, but where they really start to, to kind of come into their own is when you realize how much they enable more of a, a social gathering. And that doesn't need to be a big raucous party, but it can be. It's everything in between that and just you having a lovely evening in by yourself. It's you know, it's being able to try and think on exactly that. The, the the fact that it should be beyond a temple to the cocktail. It's it's about kind of everything around the glass as well as what's inside it. And that's always excited me is because it's you know, the best I, I used to think about every time I spoke to friends, particularly who aren't in the trade. And you ask them what their favorite night out was or their favorite meal. And yes, they might talk about something they tried, but that's the excitement of it. They're not going into the flavors of the dish. They're talking about what it enabled them to do with the people that they were with. And that's really what I wanted to, to kind of help kind of encourage is, okay, these are all the things that we've thought on of being in the industry for a long time. This is going to help you have those better moments with your friends and family. Those things that become much more memorable and it very much was a very natural thing. I got together my friends and family. I made the things that I would have made for them <laughs> during those moments. And we took photos of it. It was a very honest kind of reflection of those things. But it wasn't tried to, trying to be, well, these are the flavors that I like. You have to like them. It was going, these are a blueprint. They're not prescriptive. You take these recipes. The idea is you get an understanding of the balance of why they work in these settings and then feel kind of like empowered to kind of take them on in your own direction. So whatever flavors you love, wherever you are in the world, there are ways in which you can then take these drinks and make them your own. And that to me was what was kind of like most exciting about it rather than just, as you say, demonstrating something about how clever we've been about a yeah. certain technique or something like that. <laughs> now, now saying that, now we're going to get really nerdy in the book. Sure. So I'm bringing it down. I have to bring down the lioness menu too, because... These are not, you know, you talked about some of the ingredients and this is like one of my favorites with the um, purple pineapple and oh. the infinite banana is one of my favorites of all time. But we're going to put that aside. You have to go to Lioness to try these. Okay. I now, love that you have that. That's our, I think that was the second menu for Lioness. It was the second menu. Yes, yeah. Because I was, I was invited to the tasting of the yeah. second menu. But number one, everything that you create is so beautiful. And I love, and, and it was a surprise that these were your illustrations because I didn't know beforehand about your fine <laughs> arts um, background. 
and I'm I, just uh, going to show they are just heaven on earth. Oh, that's very kind because it was, I suppose, my my main medium when I was going into fine art was was drawing, and I went through a different phase. I went through one stage of doing kind of photorealistic drawing, and quite young, got quite bored of that, and then went way way more abstract and conceptual. But I I can draw, and so, like, I remember Ian turning to me, he was just like. It's basically like a child wrote and drew these. <laughs> and um, but I, I actually took that as a real compliment because it's it was about the clarity of it, the simplicity of stripping things away rather than something that felt overly complex. It wanted to feel quite straightforward. And so doing it in an illustrative way was 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 really fun. The only thing that I missed was I loved the frontispiece and this little cat. Oh okay, yeah. that's not in the new one, so you have to buy this book as well, everyone. You have to buy good, good together to get the little cat so they know what I'm talking about. But, all right, I'm just going to go through the book because I think it's kind of fun. I know Eric from Modern Bar Cart well, and of course, I listened to his interview with you. Oh. And he said that he had gone to one of your lectures and you talked about MAT, MAT, Mouthfill, Aroma, and Taste. And I was wondering if you've used that MAT idea with all of the cocktails in here, is it something that you, you know, it's just kind of ingrained in you, this this idea of every single cocktail has to have all these three, the mouthfeel, aroma, and taste? Absolutely. I mean, it's some things, it's it's there in the balance and it's, it's, it's kind of less kind of foot forward. And then some, it's a little bit more overt. So there's ones where we are trying to, to kind of bolster the texture or, and, you know, you do these... I, this is one one of the reasons why I love teaching classic cocktails is some of these things are inherent within some of these drinks that people know very well. If you think on the shape of a highball glass, you know, the, the apertures there designed not to kind of dissipate the bubbles too much, but it stacks up the ice so it kind of stays chilled, so it drinks differently from the top to the bottom. And so you're you're kind of controlling all of these aspects to do with the journey of the drink, the the mouthfeel, the aromas and the, the kind of weight and all of those aspects of it. But you're doing it kind of inherently to those cocktails. Other times, I think you're on occasion, you're trying to, to kind of really push the effect that those can have. So when you, you're looking to something that feels a little more end of evening, you, you want things that have a kind of rounder, richer texture that kind of hold the flavors in a slightly kind of different manner and they unfold as they kind of change as you drink it. Other times you're, you're kind of pushing the emotions of something that feels really crisp and, you know, paratif style and, you want stuff that has that kind of bracing acidity or minerality or any of those things. And actually the the book, again, I didn't want it to be too prescriptive, but it kind of follows a a journey from lighter to darker. So as you start at the beginning of the chapters, they those occasions that you want something that feels a little bit more uplifting, or those are literally those moments where you gather a kind of brighter point in the in the day or or the emotional sphere. And as it goes through, it starts to track richer and darker in those moments where you do want something that feels a little bit more kind of richer end of evening. And within those, there are moments where we're, we're kind of like pulling out the texture in a different way. You talked about the fireside flip. It's very much that as a, as a kind of thinking. The name's implied. It's kind of, you want something that feels a little cozy. It's using the kind of richness of egg to be able to give that kind of carries the flavors in a different way it gives a different kind of texture it gives a little real kind of body to it and then it's using things like the, the kind of ginger and the nutmeg to give that association a first aroma that you're going to get feels very much kind of reminiscent of 
those moments where you're you have something that's a bit comforting that is a little bit more kind of deep and brooding so it's you know there are certainly moments where we reflect that idea in a more overt way but actually it's trying to teach people to include that thinking in every element of what they create because those are the things that can help push that sentiment or like you know emotion in a, in a kind of really directed way oh boy for a cocktail that has or for i guess a food if you want to call it something that we imbibe something that we uh drink that has so few ingredients there's so much there's so much yeah. in it i mean it's hard not to get kind of nerdy about it when you want to make something good totally and you know i think it is this is one of the lovely things about teaching about the drinks. It's it's to demonstrate your care into it. That's ultimately when a drink goes from being something like fine to something magnificent. And when somebody shows that care and it's it's little things. This is why we always talk about like having the right amount of ice or like pre-chilling glassware or kind of making sure that your your sodas or your tonics are very well chilled so they're crisp enough and you know they're fresh and they're getting all of that effervescence. Honestly, some of the most, you know, I think I keep a, a very wide definition of a cocktail because to me, it's not about the number of ingredients or the techniques you've applied to do it. It's about the care. And, you know, I always say if you can serve somebody the right wine in the right glassware for that moment and you create that connection and that anticipation and delivery of it and it goes on the right arc because you've set the right volume of it, that's a cocktail. But it doesn't need to be like the, you know, I've got this wine and it's from these this region i'm using right. this redel glass to reflect this varietal it's not anything about that it's about making sure that it feels like you put the care and consideration in it you serve somebody that you know some of the best drinks i've had have been at people's you know houses or bars where they've done something that feels very idiosyncratic to them it's their favorite way of serving something and you buy into that and you just feel taken care of and that drink automatically feels one of the most wonderful things in the world and so it's about teaching this care and you know being able to to notice those differences of of texture and aroma or or realizing that if you you know change the temperature of this it changes the whole kind of profile of the drink and that those little moments can become some of the, the most wonderfully empowering bits of insight and they give people so much more freedom to run off and do their own drinks than learning all of the specs and details of of a particular type of spirit and all of the the cocktails from a certain place or, or whatever it might be. So it's definitely about that education on a much more fundamental level and a deeper level rather than it is just about gathering together information and learning all the facts. No, absolutely. And what I love is that every recipe, and I think you've, you've led, you led me to this so well, has that in it because every recipe has not only the method, but the magic. Yeah. And I love that. And that is, I feel like what you've just talked about, that is the magic. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. And it's those little bits of care and it's, it's trying to get people to notice something different, but also encourage them to think on substitutions or ways in which they can make it their own. And it is, you know, again, that's why I wanted to use language that I very much use in my usual way of talking. It's not trying to be anything too fancy. It's, it's trying to be as honest as possible. And yeah, like it was it was nice to be able to highlight those little bits of info or those little facts, those little bits of magic that, again, help people really take ownership of their drinks in a different way. Exactly. And all right, we're going to go from big picture to very small picture in the book. 
I would love to know the reason why, because it just threw me that you have a bit about the sta- the staples you should have in your house. Yeah. One is Angostura bitters, Campari, triple sec or fruit liqueur. But then you throw in absinthe. Yes. And I'm like, whoa, that's not like, you know, gin. From, I mean, this is yeah. like absinthe. This is a thing that I don't even know if it's still illegal in the States, you know. Why did you throw in absinthe? Well, it's, I mean, it's partly around the stories around it. I think there's so much myth around this as a product that I think it's important to dispel some of that and go, listen, it's it's a very wonderful product with a very rich history. It's not something that you should be terrified of or, you know, that is going to make you cut off your ear or all the other things that I've, I've heard around it as a, as a spirit. Also, from a pure alchemy point of view, I've always been amazed and people often ask about what helps them give a bigger diversity to their drinks or what can they have that they're not just forking out for a bottle to make one drink and i keep saying choose the things that you know you love go visit your friendly neighborhood bartender who's going to talk you through a different range of things and you can try it without having to invest in a full bottle but the beauty of having uh, a small bottle of absinthe is if you use it in tiny dashes the amount that it can open up your repertoire of drinks is is incredible but it can also again teach you this idea of this care and attention one of my favorite things to try is a really old recipe of a martini with a spot so it's a gin martini with a drop of absinthe now i grew up with british cuisine i didn't actually until much later on in my life kind of really develop a, even a tolerance for anise as a flavor you know i grew up despising it as a profile if there was something and a CD flavored, I just, I couldn't really kind of track with it. And then you start to notice that a tiny little drop doesn't taste of anise. It actually transforms all the other flavors. To me, a martini, the spot is a very classic profile of a gin martini because it actually makes the juniper really pop. And being able to notice the difference that things like that can make and realize that a cocktail is, is all about being greater than the sum of its parts. What a cocktail should do is partly kind of do this transformative thing that becomes otherworldly and magical, but also it kind of just helps you to learn to think about how can you do little differences that make a massive effect. And so being able to include absinthe in there and just encourage people not to be terrified of it and to kind of explore and, and kind of like reflect on what happens when you use these tiny little additions of things, you know, in a very geeky way. And I talk in, in kind of the bar circles about, the importance of flavors that are substrata. So they they sit beneath the surface. You're not going to notice them as being X. I'm I'm trying to think of an example that's not too weird to to kind of be putting here. But, you know, it's it's not necessarily about being overtly noticeable, but you really recognize the fact of when it's absent. It's like being able to to use those those magical ingredients at surefire one that is the most accessible to people is absinthe so i really do it's, it's one that i stand by a lot and there's you know i, I love white absinthe as, as, as a cocktail ingredient i mean i think the category is fascinating there's people doing amazing things across the board but white absinthe in cocktails and there's a couple of brands that you can get 20 cl bottles so it's not a huge expense of an outlay and you're using drops of it and as long as you're storing it out the light and kind of not with loads of air within it, it it's something that will be a good cocktail staple for you. I love that, you know, and I wonder if you can cook with it. I'm a big fan of adding vermouth into everything. So next time I'll have to try absinthe. Now I'm going to your table of contents. 
Yes. And it's very gin heavy. And I was wondering if that's because you love gin and that's your favorite spirit, or you find that people usually have a bottle of it in the house, or why? I will let you answer that. It's probably in multiple angles. I think I do love gin, but I think it's also it's a very classic idea. If you look at historically the thing that kind of dominated cocktail culture was was white rum, gin, cognac as well, but that's probably like a slightly different era and a different product. But gin was the thing that I noticed most people asked me for recipes for. It was what people were were kind of using in their house. Yes, of course, even within the trade, vodka still reigns supreme. But I think actually in the home market, I think people have shied away from it. They just, they're not really thinking about the wonders of what vodka can be as, a, as its own kind of spirit. So it's kind of trying to have something that was, was versatile enough that if you look at those recipes, you could sub in a different style of gin. You could sub in vodka. You could sub in a tequila or a white rum. The profile of the, works towards the spirit and I, I do believe that that's the thing that we've been kind of noticing the kind of most of in the home space but it's also giving enough flexibility and it's teaching them what happens when you start to include a different spirit here or or, or kind of substitute out that base it definitely took the lion's share but it was again not trying to be too prescriptive about that now since you brought up kind of change of taste as I said, you you had your first book, this one, in 2015, yes. and you've updated and it's a new edition, a beautiful red edition. Why did you feel that it was time to update it and add more cocktails to it and shake it up a bit? Honestly, actually, it was a serendipitous kind of timing with the decade. It actually came about from some of the book agents speaking to the publishers, and they had said that there'd been a massive kind of uptick in people making cocktails at home, exactly as we discussed. And they had looked through a range of different guides that had been out there and the ones that they had had the strongest resonance with from their perspective and from talking with other bookstores and consumers a bit, they said the one that was apparently the most useful was, was the first book, which was lovely to hear because I wanted it to be something, you know, I love seeing dog-eared copies and ones where people used it. So to hear that was, was amazing. And their challenge was that if you knew who we are, people would kind of go, good things to drink with Mr. Lion and Friends. It was, I loved that language a bit because it was what I saw it as being. But they were like, people don't know it's necessarily a book that teaches you how to make hotels at home. Okay. And, you know, they were like, everything that you've talked about with this book was being very much straightforward, what it says on the tin. And actually the title's quite confusing. <laughs> um, so they kind of went, would you make it more straightforward and we can update some bits and change the little bits of kind of content to make it work better for the people that really are looking for kind of a guide to being able to include cocktails at home. And, you know, the thing that they said they loved was it wasn't just a recipe book. There's much more of the philosophy behind it, but the philosophy is about including cocktails at home. So obviously that's a lovely thing to hear. And that was so much of the aim of it was to, to do that. If, if there was requests for it and people were, were asking for there to be this document for a wider audience who didn't currently follow us, it just seems like a great opportunity to to do that. And, you know, it's it's really nice hearing that, you know, there's been some um, big lifestyle stores that have taken the book rather than it just going to kind of like food and drink environments or, of course, bookstores and, and things like that. It was going into places like anthropology where people go to, you know, buy a collection of things. They're buying glassware. They're buying you know, things for their home. They're, they're thinking about it in a different context. 
for it to kind of suit those environments. That that was very lovely to hear. It's, it's been really nice to see the reaction to this update and to to hopefully open this up to, to kind of like a, a different audience than the ones that are newest from the bar side. And of the, you know, a billion cocktails you've made in your life, how did you pick the the new ones to add into it? <laughs> it it's actually, that was very tough because you're right. There's, there's things that we discover. It's always a, it's a dynamic world. Like things are shifting. But I think the beauty was trying to look at those occasions, those moments and try and think on recipes that had enough of a, a guide to them but also had enough flexibility to them so how could we have things that suited those moments and included some kind of new styles of ingredients new ways of um looking at stuff again there's something that i'm thinking of the smoke spite in, in there oh great because i was going to ask you if you could expand on one of them Oh, great. Yeah. It's a, a twist on a drink that's sometimes not alcoholic, sometimes includes booze, which is a tea and kind of jam base. And, you know, I first had this when I was in Russia and, and kind of served it as a very homely kind of like, oh, this is a nice soothing drink in from the cold. And it, it always stuck with me and exploring different kind of produce around the world where you, you find different teas. And of course, I, I love true teas, but there's actually a wealth of products that are becoming more available that sit in that space. Again, people are looking at different ingredients. They're getting access to different ingredients. People are making jams. They're getting much closer to things like farmer's markets. But there's also a much wider range of ingredients that are in your local supermarket now. So if you took that base, it does create this wonderful, soothing, rich drink that is great when it's kind of starting to get cold outside. It's something you can take on in a flask and go on a big walk with. But giving that idea of going, use whatever you have to hand, whatever's local to you. Don't worry about this being kind of like exactly this. I've suggested these flavor profiles because they suit my view of like those autumnal flavors. But there's absolutely so much freedom in this to use whatever you have in your, your cupboard or, or your fridge. And that was the nice guide for, for including some of the new recipes was, was reflecting on those other things that potentially hadn't been included in the book as much before. I'm kind of a romantic this way. Was there a reason that you ended with white port and tonic or it just happened that way? It was purposeful because I, that to me was one of the ones that it felt so, again, in people's eyes, highballs are just, they might make a bad gin and tonic for you at your home and they just kind of think it's, it's a gin and tonic or it's a, you know, it's a highball. It's just what you mix up for somebody who's coming over and demonstrating that it could be absolutely magnificent with just a little bit of care, but also straying beyond a kind of, I'm glad to see things like vermouth and, and some of these other fortifieds of gaining a little bit more and sherry features heaps in all of the stuff that we do, but starting to kind of gain a little bit more traction and looking at something like a, a white port and tonic, which might be in some people's headspace, but you know, some other people I've, I've suggested to that I don't even know what that is. And then, you know, then they're, they're saying, oh, as soon as you talk to me about that, I noticed it in the supermarket. It's not an ultra obscure ingredient. It's not something that you know, you're going to have to fork out loads. And it's only for a small circle that's going to be able to afford it. It's lower ABV. It's not super costly. It's something that you can customize. And then as soon as you give it to people, that that's magnificent. And you know that, that to me was like a lovely finishing drink of just go. It breaks expectations. It's accessible, but it's really going to deliver to people into something feels their own but still feels like it has a massive impact and that to me was like a beautiful summation 
of everything that we were trying to do with the book. Oh, well, that is such a wonderful way to end, I have to say. <laughs> I love whiteboard and, and, and tonic, and it's something that actually I had in Portugal, and it yeah. you reminded me to drink it. Oh, so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, why am I not drinking that? Of course, I love that that's the end. Now, I'm just going to look back. And I think we've gone through everything, which is fabulous. Oh, so glad. So um, unless there's something else that you want to tell me about the book that I didn't ask, I'd love to hear it. No, I think we, I mean, it was a lovely discussion to be able to go through something that's that's been very personal. So I really appreciate the questions because... Again, it helps you to reflect on something, you know, inevitably with, with kind of publishing, you, it's quite a big process, lots of different steps involved. So you deliver it to the publishers and you go through with the editors and you get it all together. But then there's this gap before it kind of starts to come out into the world. And there's another phase emotion when you get to talk to people about it. And it's really nice when people are as thoughtful as you were about kind of some of the reasons behind it. So it's, it's lovely to be able to talk about that, but the feelings behind it were really very genuine. I just, obviously I work in the world of cocktails, so I'm going to be biased about it, but, you know, being able to use these books as a way of talking to more people about that and to, to try and demonstrate how, how impactful it can be to do these things. It doesn't need to be complicated. You don't need to have lots of equipment or, you know, go out and buy this giant cocktail cabinet, all of these things that a lot of my friends have seen as barriers. The book tries to dispel those and, and get down and go, listen, you can do it with whatever you have in your house. Use the ingredients you have already. You don't need to make this complicated. You just need to be able to to think on what are you trying to create for the people around you at that moment. And I'm really hopeful that this does help that kind of idea get to, to kind of a load more people because it's something that I really genuinely believe in. And, you know, it's it's, it's lovely to see when people kind of come back around and make one of these drinks or make it their own and, and they put it in front of their friends and it's unexpected and everybody just ends up feeling, you know, it kicks off a discussion or you know, it, it kind of breaks down like a moment to make it feel more relaxed. You know, I, I really, I do love hearing those. So it's whenever anybody tags me in like a photo on Instagram and they're like, oh, I made this from this book. I'm, it, it, it's genuinely something that truly warms my heart because it's like, oh, it, it works. That's uh-huh. what it was for. It wasn't Yes, of course, it's nice to be able to do this as an exercise and, and writing a book is, is a wonderful thing to be able to do from a creative point of view, but it's really only real until when people connect it from the other side. Um, so yeah, it's it was a labor of love. It is something I, I cared immensely about, um, but yeah, I want it to work for people. That That's the main thing for me. Well, it definitely, definitely does. Now, usually I have two final questions and I usually ask for the top tip for the home bartender, but I think... The top tip would to be would to be the t- sorry. <laughs> the top tip would be to buy your book. Oh, that's very sweet. But I, I mean, it's. I, I think the top tip is just to take that moment to reflect on what you love and what you're trying to do with whatever you're making. If it's for a gift, if it's for a special occasion, if it's date night. As soon as you start to just take that moment to reflect and and think about those parameters, and that sounds really easy. Often we just get swept up with, oh, this is the the thing that fits that, or I'm, I've, I found this recipe and that's I've been told that that's what's special. It's not. It's all about just kind of like thinking for yourself, what do you want the moment or that emotion to be? And the more care you put into that, the more magical it's going to be. Oh, absolutely. Now, last but not least, um, 
this is, well, I love to hear this because I feel like I really get to know the person this way. But if you could be drinking anything anywhere right now, what would it be and where would it be? Well, it's just started raining here. <laughs> and even though it's kind of, it's a very lovely view looking out, you know, on, on, on London where there's the greenery and this, this light. But I actually, I was actually thinking about some of the, the friends who can't join us for our kind of decade celebrations that are coming up in, in a very short time. Um, and actually being probably in Australia, cause that's where the bulk of my family and some very, very dear friends are. Um, and being able to be there toasting was something that was like truly tropical because you know some of the ingredients i got to try out there that would be you know a, a, a deliciously fruity take on a margarita or or something that feels very kind of island celebration would be wonderful right now and that would be a very lovely toast to do with some some dear friends and family uh, yes and i was going to mention that a toast to you and i can't wait to see what you do in the next 10 years because you've been so influential for these past 10 years that like the sky is your limit really that's very sweet i i mean i'm it feels very exciting kind of having kind of reflected on this this kind of 10 year point but to still have that feeling that we're only just getting started i'm i'm very excited we've got such an amazing crew and they're doing such brilliant things I, I kind of retain that excitement around it all. And yeah, I, I can't wait to see what we're able to do next. Absolutely. So, and, and everyone head to Lioness or any of the bars, any of the lion bars that are near you. All right. And thank, thank you. you so much for spending this hour with me. It's been really great to go through your book and learn about your flavor relationship <laughs> and, and you as an educator. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I so want to thank Ryan for joining me on the program. And like me, I'm sure you'll want to grab that book off the shelf and start making cocktails. In true fashion, our Cocktail of the Week is a recipe you can make for a crowd of the favorite people in your life. Our Cocktail of the Week is the simply named Barley Champagne. Ryan describes it this way. A favorite hosting approach for me has always been to bottle up a base, then top up with bubbles as guests arrive. It works wonderfully during other seasons too, but I find that particularly around the festive periods, when people are much more lax with timings, having something that can be poured quickly at the last minute to get everyone a drink without taking you away from the celebrations is a great plan. This might seem very bright in profile, but it works perfectly with any true dry sparkling wine to accentuate the characteristics. But you can easily go big and powerful with flavors too. So, you'll need four shots of water, which is about 100 mils or four ounces, six shots of lemon barley water cordial, which is about 150 mils or six ounces, eight shots of Fino Sherry or dry vermouth, which is about 200 mils or eight ounces, and 12 shots of London Dry Gin, which is about 300 mils or 12 ounces, and then 10 dashes of Tabasco, plus a few rosemary sprigs for garnish. The method is as follows. Add the water, cordial, sherry or vermouth, and gin to a jug, then add the Tabasco. Stir and then decant into a clean wine bottle and chill well. To serve, add a shot and a half, which is about 
40 ml or 1.5 ounces of the chilled mixture to a flute. Then top with bubbles and add a sprig of rosemary. So, the magic is that you can make lemon barley cordial at home. It's a very old-fashioned British cordial of pearl barley and lemon. But this recipe works great with any store-bought cordial that brings sweetness and acidity. Elderflower, blackcurrant, or even more regional ones such as redcurrant or gooseberry also work, although there's a richness to the barley addition that works wonderfully. Tabasco adds a background heat, but try adding other accent spices such as guachong or sriracha. Just sieve it after mixing to remove any particulates as they will interfere with the fizz. Plus, you'll just want a hint of fruity warmth, else you'll throw the balance of the drink. You'll find this recipe, more champagne cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll definitely find some of the ingredients in my shop. Can you believe it's Venice Cocktail Week again? Yep, that's where I am. If you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars you love and order a drink. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next up is a Brit who fell in love with Japan and is now the House of Suntory Global Advocacy Manager and my friend. Until that time, bottoms up.